Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and it is a total pleasure for me to have an old friend of mine on the podcast and somebody who we were just talking about this was sort of there at the inception of the, you know, when the, when the podcast was but a glint, a glimmer in my eye, I think a, a Twitter, I mean, there in quote quotation marks, um, a, a Twitter conversation led me to say, I think publicly, you know, I've been toying around with this idea. And our guest today, Johanna Winant, was um, one of the people, one of the few people who said, oh, Kamran, you must do this. Um, and I don't think I did it immediately, but I I took that as strong encouragement, I filed it away. And once I launched the podcast, I, I knew um, that I had Johanna um, partly to thank for that and that she would surely have to be a guest on the podcast. So it's a real thrill to have her here finally. Um, Johanna Wynant, um has chosen a poem by Emily Dickinson for us to read. And it's it's the poem that is you know, either called, it's as most Dickinson, almost all Dickinson poems are sort of referred to by its first line. Um, so its title is My Life Had Stood a Loaded Gun. Um, and as ever, you'll be able to find that poem, a, a link to the text of that poem in the episode notes. Um, oh, it has also, um, I have realized, I think, um, recently that depending on which podcast service you use, sometimes those links don't work as links in the episode notes. So anyway, apologies, maybe try a podcast service where you can get it. Um, but also um, know that you can just Google the, um, the, the poem and you'll find it there. Um, you may have heard my dog barking in the background. Um, so let me tell you more about, uh, and apologies for that. Let me tell you more about Johanna. Let me tell you about our guest. She's an assistant professor in the Department of English at West Virginia University, um, where she writes about and teaches um, on the topics of transatlantic modernism, um, 20th century American literature, philosophy, and its intersection with literature. Um, and perhaps most pertinently for our purposes today, um, transhistorical poetry and poetics. Uh, Johanna earned her PhD from the University of Chicago, where, among many other interesting things that happened to her um, during those years, and, and maybe she'll tell us about some of them, um, she worked with a, a previous guest um, on the podcast. So she was a student of Oren Eisenberg's, um, and maybe you'll hear some of that intellectual lineage sort of shine through um, during our conversation today. Johanna... Um, uh, has has written a book which um, or has just nearly um, is right about to finish writing a book which will be in our hands soon I hope um, the book's title is Lyric Logic and I was all ready to read you the subtitle of the book but Johanna tells me that the subtitle is maybe in process so sorry it's not that's not the subtitle maybe it should be um, but it uh, but she'll tell us uh, more um, maybe about the subtitle of that book uh, but what the book is about is about modern American poetry and the way that it has transformed um, what she refers to as the epistemological problem of induction and what that means for people who aren't familiar with some of those words is the difficulty of predicting future experiences based on past ones. So, you know, like in the classic example, how do you know the sun's going to come up tomorrow? Well, it, it, 
it has come up every other morning of your life. And so that question, um, the, the, the problem of induction, her, her book is about how poetry transforms that problem into a poetic strategy. Um, and, and that strategy challenges philosophy's account of how to make sense of the world. Um, and she, um, she, the the book features readings of um, you know a, a list of wonderful poets, including the poet that we're talking about today, Emily Dickinson. Um, Johanna's articles and reviews have appeared in places like the James Joyce Quarterly, um, Paiduma. I, I never know how to say the name of that journal, and I feel like embarrassed about that. Given sorry, that's a Poundian term, and I and as a you know someone who cut my teeth in sort of modernist poetry, I should, I should be more confident. But anyway, Paiduma, Paiduma, um, the Journal of Modern Literature, uh, Modernism, Modernity, and elsewhere, um, in, including in um, public uh, fora. And, um, and I will provide links to, um, to Johanna's publications so that you can go look them up. Uh, one thing you'll discover if you do is that Johanna Winant has, I think, a kind of unique talent um, as, uh, as a writer. She she takes on vexing and complex, difficult philosophical and poetic problems, and she sits patiently with them, and she reformulates their constitutive parts in such a way as to make them clear without diminishing either their complexity or their beauty. Uh, she's an expert teacher, in other words, and I mean that both um, in the classroom, though that's where perhaps I have the least authority to make that claim, having never been in her classroom. I've been in places with Johanna that are like classrooms. You know, um, I have been on panels with her at conferences. Um, I have seen how she handles um, Q&A sessions in those settings. Um, Johanna and I have been part of reading groups and working groups together, and I've seen her think um, in those spaces. So I have a sense of what it's like. To, oh, and actually, I have visited one of Johanna's classes as a guest, so I have seen it. Um, so, But I, I, I mean that she's an expert teacher both in that traditional sense of in the classroom, but she's also a teacher on the page. Um, she asks the kinds of questions that I'm always encouraging my students to form, um, questions that are, when put the right way, easy to understand and hard to answer. Um, it, it's it's a great talent to have as a writer, and um, and I think um, I think you'll see it um, on display in our conversation today. Um, and and I think that Johanna's chosen a poem that will um, elucidate. Um, um, some of those kinds of questions that I've, I've just been describing um, for everyone. So uh, with that, I want to say, Johanna, welcome to Close Readings and tell me how you're doing today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you for that lovely and generous introduction. It's a total delight to be here today. Um, I'll just mention, as I already told Kamran, that I have a cold, so <laughs> I'm a little sniffly, but I am not weeping over Dickinson uh, at this moment. Well, not yet. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there may be sniffles of all kinds before we're done. Um, thanks for braving it, uh, braving the, the cold to be with us. Um, this, it is a real pleasure for me. Um, and, you know, is that like so far in the, in the run of this podcast, I have, um, you know, I guess for obvious reasons, I've thought, well, let's, let's um, not double up on a poet 
there there's so much poetry to go around let's let's have some coverage and um you know you and i took a little bit of finagling to get our schedules to align to do this and it it seemed funny to me that nobody kept picking dickinson <laughs> which is like a dickinsonian way to put it maybe um Johanna, when when you started thinking about coming on was how sure were you that dickinson was the poet that you wanted to do and and to the extent that you um, decided to do her in the end, it like, why for this setting? There are a lot of poems that I love in a pure way and mm. some poems that bother me so much that it feels something like love, <laughs> but it's not uh, necessarily unmixed. And this poem is sort of the epitome of the latter yeah, I was going to say. Um, so, uh, that's right. Po- because even having chosen Dickinson, I was surprised by the, I wasn't surprised by your choosing Dickinson, but I was surprised by your choice of this poem. Yeah. There are Dickinson poems that I feel like I hold closer to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one has always been, uh, an aggravating splinter. <laughs> um, and yeah. I say that with like, like with real awe and gratitude. Yeah. Um, But uh, it, um, so I think I could have talked about uh, the brain is wider than the sky or tell all the truth, but tell it slant very happily. Right. Um, In some ways, probably more happily. (laughs) Well, what's, you know, what I, what I am like restraining myself from saying is that, you know, you just laid out, well, there are poems I love unreservedly, uncomplicatedly, maybe. I mean, I'm, these are my yeah. words, not yours. And then there are poems that I that irritate me and that, you know, generate a different kind of love. Yeah. And, uh, and, and what's funny, Johanna, is that, like, there are people who would say, and that's why I chose something from the former category. <laughs> so in a way, what you're, you're sort of dividing things into two categories that I think are recognizable for many of us, whether we feel that way about poems or people or whatever, <laughs> you know, other things. Um, and it tells us something, I think, about you that you would want to like lean into that irritation a little bit. Yes. Um, yeah. I feel like the irritation tells me a lot both about myself actually, and about the things that irritate me. Uh, And again, like I, um, I, I feel like it sounds like I'm putting down this poem and I really don't mean to be. Um, It's, uh, I I find it like vertiginously powerful. Like um, I'm not someone who like goes skydiving, but this (laughs) poem feels kind of like that to me. Yeah. Uh, in that it's, um, uh, you feel like such enormous forces acting upon hmm. you as a reader. Mm-hmm. So Good. it was, I think it responds really well to close reading. I think we can talk about that more too. But, um, but as I was thinking about like, why did I choose this poem? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, and I can also sort of talk about like my history reading Dickinson. Um, mm. But uh, a lot of it, I think, had to do with feeling 
that someone had to do it <laughs> so uh, that I could be at peace. <laughs> oh, that's so, so funny. Uh, so yeah. we'll see if I'm at peace after this podcast or not. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Remind me to ask you about that if I forget. Well, um, since you, um, I, th- I think something you just mentioned in, in passing um, might lead to a nice segue here. Um, you said we could talk about how you came to become a reader of Dickinson. And, you know, um, on the podcast, Johanna, um, we sometimes have poets that seem a bit, you know, more obscure or like um, poets that like poetry people know, but maybe the wider public doesn't know. But I'll bet that most of our listeners and no shame if you're not one, if if you're, if I'm not describing you now, but most of our listeners have heard of Emily Dickinson. Um, Even if they don't know it, it could be reminded of a Dickinson poem that they've read in grade school or something like that. Um, So, um, Given that, and given that listeners may have not only some kind of um, sense of Dickinson as a poet, but some sort of image of who she as a person was in their minds, um, I guess I'm asking you two things now. Tell us about how you came to become a reader of Dickinson, and tell us also about like what, what, if anything, by way of context, you think you would want um, our listeners to know about the, the poet that you're going to be talking about today. Yeah, I'll do those in the opposite order, if that's okay. Um, it's totally okay. Dickinson lived from 1830 to 1886, although um, she published 10 poems during her lifetime. Uh, and after her death, although people close to her knew that she was writing poetry, um, nearly uh, 1,800 poems were discovered. And about 800 of those were bound in um, 40 little books that scholars call fascicles. Uh, And the poem I'm talking about today um, is the ninth poem from fascicle number 34. Uh, which had 18 poems. So it was, uh, you, you looked that up, right? I did. Oh, oh I 100% looked this up. <laughs> okay, um, I knew it was in one of the fascicles. Like I knew it wasn't one of the loose ones or one of the ones yeah, with yeah. the letters, but I couldn't remember that it was fascicle 34. And actually, I'm just going to interrupt you very briefly. I don't want you to lose your train of thought, but to say that um, her um, Dickinson's archives have been digitized. And so it will be very easy for me to provide you with a link so that you can see not only the, a nice clean text of the poem, which I'll also give you, but you can see the poem in Dickinson's handwriting and you could see the piece of paper that was sewn into one of these fascicles with this poem on it. Yes. Um, and so like, even now, like we encountered this poem in um, quatrains, which we can talk about, mm-hmm. but uh, it's like not so plain that that's delineation in the, in the manuscript. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Dickinson's poetry, because it was published posthumously, uh, has a complicated publication history involving different um, heirs and editors and sort of uh, collections of manuscripts. So this poem is um, numbered uh, number 754 by Johnson, one of the editors, and numbers, uh, numbered 764 by Franklin, mm-hmm. uh, which is why um, we often just refer to her poems by their first first lines. Um, so that's just like a little bit about the poem. It was probably written in 1863, mm-hmm. uh, which was 1862 and 1863 are, are where Dickinson just hit this incredibly prolific time. Um, it's crazy. I yeah. Mean, like, yeah. I mean, either or both of those years are sometimes described as um, 
in Annus Mirabilis, which is a miracle year, where she was writing about a poem a day. Uh, so like truly extraordinary. So this is really at the peak of her powers. Including many of the poems for which she's most yes, well known. Yes, like, no, yeah. like she didn't, I mean, it's not that she didn't miss because I think there's some unevenness and we know more poems for some good reasons better than others, but um, right. like truly an extraordinary yeah. uh, stretch. Um, and maybe it's just worth pointing out too, though this may not be your, I suspect it's not your your interest here, <laughs> Johanna, that 1863 for people who are unfamiliar with American history maybe puts us right in the middle of the Civil War. Yes. Right. And um, so Dickinson's Dick- writing from uh, Massachusetts. Um, say more. Yeah. Yes. If, Dickinson if lived in Amherst, Massachusetts. She spent some time in like the Boston area too, but mostly was in Amherst, Massachusetts. Never married. Uh, wrote her poetry on a tiny desk in this very beautiful, sunny, south facing bedroom. Um, of her, what had been her father's house uh, on Main Street in Amherst. Her family was prominent Amherst citizens, uh, involved in the founding of Amherst College, for example. Um, And um, I mean, there's stuff to say about her biography. I don't really Mm -hmm. feel like we need to go too deep into it, but it was obviously like a really complicated moment in American history. Uh, The Second Great Great Awakening was going on. the Civil War, obviously, and um, the ways in which those events touch or do not touch her poetry is actually not clear. Right. Yeah. I mean, I raise it in this case. <laughs> I mean, one could raise it about any poem written in 1863 mm-hmm. by by someone living in the United States, but, um, you know, it's a poem about a gun or right. uh, seems to be anyway. So um, that makes the question feel a bit more salient. Um, now um, you were going to tell us more about yeah. how you came to Dickinson. So I was an undergrad English major and I took a course called Whitman and Dickinson, which is a course actually the title that I teach now that mm. I just taught this semester. Funny that. <laughs> <laughs> Strange how that happens. Yeah. Um, so I was probably about 19. And, um, and I remembered... Uh, feeling like she would swallow me, Mm. feeling like her poems would, you know, eat me up, which is, uh, Mm. how she describes the ocean. And I started early, took my dog. Um, Mm. like I remember liking Whitman more Mm. at the time, um, and feeling kind of freaked out (laughs) by Dickinson. Um, and that was actually like really uh, interesting for me because I was not like some of your guests on this podcast have been really a poetry person in high school. Mm. I read enormous amounts of literature, but almost entirely novels. Right. Um, so like, I'm still very good on like the Victorian novel and stuff because mm-hmm. like I just read, I read a lot of that. Um And then when I got to college, I remember feeling a few things, uh, including that I was scared of destroying the novels that I loved by analyzing them. (laughs) No (laughs) such fear with the poems? (laughs) No, actually. No. Um, But that the poems seemed uh, both richer and like more resistant to me in ways Mm -hmm. that I liked. Interesting. and Dickinson was sort of really one of the first cases of a poet 
where I felt very clearly that I was never going to master this. And I was into that. Mm-hmm. Like I was into the fact that like this was so much greater than I was, but I also found it terrifying. Um, and then in graduate school uh, at Chicago, uh, I had a sort of um, uh, a few sort of powerful encounters with Dickinson. One was in my very first quarter there, I was taking a class with Lauren Berlant, who, um, and I was like very uh, overwhelmed and I didn't know what I was doing. And she pulled me aside at one point and uh, suggested that we have coffee. And we did. And I remember sort of being like, why did she want to have coffee with me? Is she going to tell me that I'm like not cut out for this? Like what's going on? And she's not someone I ever got to know well. That was the only class I ever took with her. Uh, or with, I should have, I should have uh, say with them. Um, mm-hmm. And I apologize for that. I, uh, when I knew Lauren, um, uh, Lauren yeah. went by she, her. Uh, and um Lauren asked me to have coffee and I remember just sort of chit-chatting with with Lauren in this sort of like kind of slightly bewildered way. And at one point Lauren looked at me and said, I think you'd like this book called Lyric Time by Sharon Cameron. And I have no idea. Mm. I have no idea what uh, prompted that (laughs) suggestion. They, they, They saw something about you though that I was, guess, that was there we weren't, we yeah. weren't talking about dickinson um but i read lyric time and it bowled me over um and uh and you, i you've called it your origin story to me i did, I did call it my origin <laughs> sorry story. i'm i'm uh, i don't know if that was for public consumption no yeah. that's fine like it like in i the like term... the idea of academics having like superhero origin stories <laughs> that was the radioactive spider that bit you was lyric right. time right <laughs> Um, okay. And that's, that's actually like extremely accurate, I think. Um, yeah. and, uh, and then I decided to write a dissertation chapter on Dickinson and my dissertation was fairly different than my book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just chewed me up. Uh, it was the first chapter I tried to write. I would yeah. write like 80 pages and throw them out and start again. And I think mm. I did that like four times and I <laughs> do not recommend this. Yeah. Um, but it was clear to me that if I could manage to write this chapter, then I could write the dissertation. And if I could not write this chapter, I could not write this dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> and it took me a long time to figure out how to write that chapter. Yeah. Um, and then I never looked at that again. And I wrote a book chapter on Dickinson without even opening that file. Great. But I did write a book chapter on Dickinson with a lot less... Um, drama uh internally at least i think um but i still like i said uh i mean i guess i feel happy with it but um good don't feel like i have uh like conquered dickinson in any meaningful well thank god for that (laughs) so as i told you i was gonna i'm just gonna say i don't know a lot yeah that's good in this uh in this podcast who wants to feel like they've conquered (laughs) <laughs> um, the the literature. That, I mean, I don't know. Probably people do. I I don't think I want to feel that way. Um, uh, well, maybe also in the course of our conversation. I mean, I, I, there's part of me that wants to ask you more about you know why lyric time and and so on. But 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 actually, I think maybe the wiser bet is to defer that um, and hope that it you know some version of your accounting of why that that book that book by Sharon Cameron so moved you um, will sort of um, bubble up in the conversation we have about this poem. Um, 
and I think I think it's probably high time that we um, we hear the poem um, read aloud. So, um, would that we had a recording of Emily Dickinson <laughs> reading this, um, reading this for us. But but we're gonna um, we're gonna have to content ourselves with Johanna Wynette reading the poem. Johanna, um, will you read it for us? Yes. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till a day the owner passed, identified, and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. And do I smile such cordial light upon the valley glow? It is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. And when at night our good day done, I guard my master's head, tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. To foe of his, I'm deadly foe, none stir the second time, on whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I. For I have but the power to kill without the power to die. That's wonderful. Um, Thanks, Johanna. Um, So, you know, one thing I like to do, and um, I would do it even if we were in a seminar room and we were all looking at the poem but I think it's especially helpful maybe given that this is a podcast and, you know, some people may be driving or whatever and aren't able to look at the text is just to do a bit of describing of, of what the poem on the page um, suggests to you um, sort of as a whole before we back up and start at the beginning as it were. So as so many of Dickinson's poems are, it's in quatrains of four line stanzas. Um, you, um, alluded earlier on, Johanna, to um, some of what might be a slightly more complicated story than that, given what the poem looks like in manuscript. Um, but what you know, tell us what what do you notice about it? Um, what do you um, as you look at it? Yeah, so it's six quatrains. Um, Dickinson commonly wrote in quatrains, or at least that's how we've lineated the poems now. Uh, and they're in what's called common measure or um, hymn measure sometimes, that's what it's called too, which is where the first and the third line are iambic tetrameter, and the second and the fourth line are iambic trimeter, and the second and the fourth line rhyme with each other. Um, This is a really well-known stanzaic form. It's really similar to like what ballads are written in as well as hymns. Um, It means that you can sing Dickinson's poetry to various tunes, including Amazing Amazing Grace and uh, the theme song from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say the latter. I've always, <laughs> which, yeah, yeah, go Which go I on. will not do on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, right. Um, so, so there, there's that. And, and, um, you know, so you said um, tetrameter and trimeter. So tetrameter for people who don't know is, is a line with um, four um, metrical feet in it so four accented syllables um trimeter with three so in terms of the length of the lines four three four three not as syllable counts but as um as the number of feet in the lines or the number of stresses in the lines and she's um not like 
super regular about even that scheme that you've described, right? Right. Um, In this poem, it's fairly regular for Mm -hmm. a Dickinson poem, Um, although there are lots of other poems that she's not writing in quatrains at all. But this is sort of one of her most commonly used uh, poetic forms. Right. And, um, And she takes a form that would have been very well known as a hymn form and yeah. sort of makes it and, and something sung collectively yeah and makes it uh sort of this lyric we yeah. could say form yeah. or it's understood to be that um with a single single speaker so yeah. it's pretty interesting i think it's um, so interesting it's almost like you know the sense i've had is like she's got this tune running in her head mm-hmm. and it's just always going there and she you know like you get the poem and see what words come down to the tune that's already going mm-hmm. with all kinds of interesting variations that then happen once the words start to materialize yeah and the other thing i'll say about this poem on the page too is um there are variant words in this poem yeah <laughs> um, there's one that i'm really curious about near the end i bet you can guess yeah, but, yeah. art yeah yeah um so dickinson uh in the fascicles these are what are called like fair copies like they're not right they're not drafts they're final um there's not like cross outs or mistakes but there are also in a number of the poems what are called like variant words or variant lines or sometimes even variant stanzas where there's a little option to like choose your own adventure right. where there's an asterisk. And then at the bottom of the page, you can sort of sub in another word for that one. So um, in this poem, for example, it could be instead of we roam in sovereign woods, it could be we roam the sovereign woods instead of... Um, the deep pillow to have shared. It could be the low pillow to have shared. Instead of none stir the second time, it could be none harm the second time. Right. Or the last one is for I have but the power to kill. And it could be for I have but the art to kill right. without the power to die. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's funny because if you look at what um, in, you know, scholars will call a variorum edition and one, um, edition, such edition exists. I have it open in front of me right now. Um, you'll see at the end of the poem the, that the editor has given you like the po- te- possible textual variations for on different lines and so on. And with some poets, what that signals is like, well, they published it two different ways, or we have drafts and it's not clear which is the final draft. But here it's more like the editor is simply recording the variation that was built into what we would want to otherwise take as the final version. Right. So it's not, yeah. um, and Sharon Cameron has another book called I was Choosing, say, Not Choosing. <laughs> yeah. Is this an example of choosing, not choosing? Yes. Um, yeah. That it's uh, not, um, it's not that this is unfinished. Um, and like th- that, that in its finished form, it has other possibilities. And hmm, I guess it raises questions about what we mean by finished to begin with. Definitely. Um, Ordinarily, we might think, well, the published version. Now, sometimes there's a question, I mean, in in contemporary poetry, there can be the question about like, well, do we mean the, the, you know, if there is a change made between a magazine version and a book version, that can raise sort of interesting textual questions. But for Dickinson, of course, who didn't publish really, except, I mean, unless we consider the fascicles to be a 
kind of publication. And do we know much about like, did the fascicles, like what were they for? Did they, were they meant to circuit? Was she? It, it doesn't yeah. seem that they yeah. were to be that they were circulated. They were bound. Mm-hmm. I mean, she sewed them together with little holes right. Right. on the side and tied them together. Um, but yeah, okay. uh, her poems circulated in letters. Right. Um, but mm-hmm. this one, at least, if this one circulated, so. yeah, yeah. If this one circulated in letters. The letter didn't survive. Right. That's a that's a careful way to phrase it. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so yeah, okay. Um, so that's right. For people who don't know, like many of the poems we have by Dickinson, will have there's a version she put in a letter and another version in a fascicle. Sometimes it's just in the letter and not in the fascicle. And then sometimes it's on like loose scrap of paper, mm-hmm. sort of the back uh, of an envelope. <laughs> yes. Right. And there are volumes you can get that, um, that have been recently published that, that give you a kind of tactile um, impression of that sort of thing. Okay. So let's back up now, Johanna. Um, my life. Um, the first stanza um in, in the first, the first two words of the poem are my life. And in the final line of that stanza, there's a me. So just to remind listeners of that stanza, my life had stood a loaded gun in corners till a day the owner passed, identified and carried me away. What do you understand my <laughs> life? What do you understand my life to refer to? Is it different from me? And if so, how? There's a lot of things in this poem that are not quite synonyms with each other, like right. my life and me and master and owner, right? for example, um, or even like Rome and hunt, right? So there's like a lot of things that seem very similar, but are not quite the same. And I think that what vexes, I mean, this this poem has been written about by like, everyone there's uh everyone um important who has written on dickinson has written about this poem Mm. um there's no consensus there's something like 55 articles i think uh i saw susan stewart say in her article about this poem Mm. um susan howe lists like nine or ten readings of like what my life could mean here like the Mm -hmm. first two lines of the poem so do you want to talk to us about some of, as you think about it, what yeah. seemed like the the most, you know, I don't know. So, yeah, so it's interesting for likely me. Likely possibilities. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that's interesting for me is how vivid this is and how immediately, like, even undergraduates are, like, hooked in to this poem. What 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 gives it that quality in your view? Um. I mean, you said vividness, but say more about that. Yeah, well, that there's, uh, it is immediately available to like various kinds of allegory. Right. So like, I think um, the sense of potential energy that has been unrecognized. Right, so we can understand what it might mean in the ordinary course of a human life to refer to it as a loaded gun. Yeah, that... um, uh that or or to you know to be in corners although like there's also lots i mean uh there's readings of even that phrase at uh in the 19th century usage but like what is it you know to be um unused or unuseful or um not recognized as powerful uh and i think it's 
immediately apparent why this poem has been so important to feminist scholars right. of Dickinson. Uh, to have to have um, been to, to have potential energy to be a loaded gun, but not have any kind of application for that energy. Uh, and that um, it's both immediately apparent what that's like, and also like profoundly strange to say my life had stood a loaded gun in corners because there's a literalness too of like a gun in a corner mm. standing there. So like, is the standing mm. there uh, figurative or literal? is mm. not clear mm. immediately here. Like, are we talking about a person or are we talking about a thing? Right. And that kind of uncanny valley between people and things, which is again, like so important to feminist um, con- reconceptualizations of Dickinson, uh, like runs throughout her work. Um, right. And is always a little bit, I think, uh, charged and um, unsettling. Yeah, I mean, there's something, um that that's that's really nicely said uh, i think there's there's something right that is so um and and perhaps this is misleadingly so but so kind of easily um graspable in a kind of allegorical way about what it might mean to say that my life had stood a loaded gun so in all of the ways you've just described and others besides we could imagine lives that are like this we might sometimes feel that our own life is like this if we feel as though we have some kind of power that's not being recognized or um, deployed in the world. But, and so it encourages us in a way, at least encourages me, I'll say me, it encourages me to start to read it allegorically. Okay. So the loaded gun is sort of allegory. My life is like that sort of untapped potential. And then we get another character. Um, the owner mm-hmm. and I have, it's it for me, it's, it's suddenly impossible to identify who that owner might be. Like, yes, they're sort of like I, the, the allegory, like it's, you're like invited in and then the car breaks down. You know? Well, I think you're invited in and then the car breaks down and then you're presented with like various wrenches or like, jump startery kits i don't <laughs> I like know it. how okay. to i don't know how to repair cars we're allegorizing allegory now go go on yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can get it going again yeah so what you are some say, of those what are some of those say, kits oh the owner is a lover mm-hmm. the owner is her muse right the owner is god mm-hmm. like these are all sort of like pretty established readings of this poem right um or susan stewart's reading it's a dog talking and the owner is the owner <laughs> It's like a brilliant reading. It's also yeah. like like deflating in some ways. Um, and so you can sort of jumpstart it again. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, okay, I get it. Like this is, and this is like, you know, Helen Vendler's um, sort of take on it. Like this is a story about um, uh, inspiration mm-hmm. that, like poetic inv- inspiration um, that, the speaker had this kind of potential energy like stuck inside of her. Right. And then the owner passed and identified her, which again, you're, you're like wrenching around the poem a little bit here. You're like monkeying with some of the bolts. 
Mm. and carried me away um, into being a poet. Uh, yeah. And identify you, the subject and the object of that verb could go either way, though. So, sorry, explain what you mean by that. The owner passed identified. Who is identifying whom? Uh-huh. The I owner see. could be identifying the gun and saying, oh, like, I, I am the owner of this gun slash person. Right. Or, or my life as the gun or whatever. Right. right. Okay. So the owner could be identifying the gun. Or it could be that the gun slash person, my life, is identifying the owner. Right. The owner passed identified. And if that were the case, would that, would, I mean, the, the subject of the fourth line of the carried must be the owner, right? Yes, yeah, I think okay. so. But, um, because it's, but the compression and then right. the, I guess, you know, we should have said this earlier when I was talking about the poem on the page, there's lots of dashes. Oh yeah. Right. Dickinson's <laughs> famous dashes. So, so say something about how, how do you talk to students about those, Johanna? Um, what, how do you think about them yourself? Um, do they mean something special here or do they always sort of do the same kind of thing? Well, I'll just say that Dickinson, um, tends to put dashes where other people would put periods, commas, colons, and semicolons. So and sometimes she puts them where people would not put anything. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. Breaths. Maybe. I see. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, I mean, some people like get into like the various lengths of the dashes in the manuscripts. Like I don't really get into that. Although mm-hmm. like cool. I think I would like to learn more about that. Um, and with many, as with many things, Dickinson or maybe poetry in general, with students, I tend to be like, what do you think? Yeah, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe- I, guess, I guess one thing to say is like um, sort of re- related to the variant question and the choosing, not choosing kind of mm-hmm. idea is that, I mean, just in your brief gloss now, and I say something similar, like... Um, you know, one thing you could do to students is to say like substitute, you know, and editors did this to Dickinson, of course, is take the dashes out, put other punctuation in, and you have to make choices suddenly. Right. And like, and And maybe what the dashes are doing is preserving the possibility of not making the choice. Yes. Um, And I think it's really interesting to ask students like, well, what changes if we put a period there instead of a dash? Right. Um, but the so, reason that I, the yeah, reason yeah. I'm able to sort of read identified both ways is that it's surrounded by dashes. Right. The owner passed dash identified dash and carried me away. So it could either be sort of like a positive to the owner, like the owner who was identified mm-hmm. right by me, presumably, mm-hmm. or it could be, um, the owner passed as one verb comma. Here's another verb identified. Yes. And- comma. And here's the third verb, carried me away. Right. right. And the line break comes after identified. So that also um, gives it a little bit more flexibility in that it separates it from carried. Yeah. I, but, wanted, to, I wanted to ask you something about carried me away. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know if you were gonna, if you were going to say something else, say that. I, no, okay. No. What I was going to say is that all of this is only interesting in terms of like what the stakes of it are. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So like, um, like, what does it matter that identified could be read in either way? Right. What does it matter even that there are dashes? Yeah. So like, it's cool because like no one else is doing this quite the way that Dickinson is doing it. But um, the 
ambiguity or even I think could be called like indeterminacy of a lot of Dickinson is only interesting to me uh, in terms of like what it tells us about um, what's going on in the poem. So like with identified, like I said, it's not clear who's the subject and who's the object there. Right. But that's also because it's not clear throughout this poem who is the subject and who's the object. Mm -hmm. Like what uh, what subjecthood is in this poem, mm -hmm. what objecthood is in this poem is up for grabs. Right. Uh, and so I identified like the fact that it can sort of swing either way is like cool, but only sort of cashes out uh, interpretively because it sort of is a window into mm -hmm. sort of seeing what else is going on in this poem in that like we're not sure if the gun is powerful as a subject or only as an object is it right. choosing things or not choosing things even in the, you know and so like uh Cameron's book choosing not choosing is about like making a choice to sort of let uh indeterminacy stand um which i think is which like which might look to the world like not making a choice right right um and i think that's really interesting, but I also, for me, at least, want to sort of think about like, well, what matters about the indeterminacy here, even mm -hmm. down to the level of the dashes. Right. Um, right. And so like what's lost if we were to lose them is actually an important question as opposed to, uh, as opposed to uh, a classroom exercise to kill time. Or something right. like that because it's about like well what's the point of the indeterminacy that right. was what i was going to say what were you going to say well i would so i, I think i was going to ask you you know about a phrase whose reading might you know be an instance of the thing you were just describing which is carried me away i don't know um whether the kind of idiomatic use of like oh i got carried away as you know, as we might use it to signal what um, a kind of emotional overwhelm of our yeah. reason or something um, uh, it would have been as available um, to Dickinson. So we could look into that and try to um, figure that out. But even if it's not of, I, I guess so. So. Here's here's my question to sort of use some of the terms that you've just given us, Johanna. It's, but it's now a question for you because <laughs> <laughs> you're the you're the you've got to do all the heavy lifting here. Um, I'm noticing that you know carried me away might be something might mean something literally that you do to an object that you pick up and take off with your you know take somewhere. Um, but it also is a way of describing a kind of um, emotional state. Or a psychological state, and what and so, what I want to know using your terms here is like, what are the stakes of that ambiguity? Um, yeah. do, does that matter? I think yeah. it does matter. I think it ties back into whether we're talking about an object or a person. Um, that only a person with like subjectivity can talk about being carried away intellectually or emotionally, right? Um, whereas an object is just sort of like picked up. And but then it's it's so it's another moment where it really tempts allegorical reading, but makes it clear that you can't actually just uh, disregard the concern that maybe mm. we're still in the literal. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Um, I'll also note here that um, there's a perfect rhyme between day and away. Yeah. The second line and the fourth line. Right. Uh, and a lot of times, like that's what's supposed to happen in common measure. Right. Uh, but a lot of times it doesn't in Dickinson's poems. As in this, even in the second stanza of this poem. Yes. Right. And so in this poem, the first and the last stanza have perfect rhymes. And right. some of the others have slant rhymes or like not really rhymes at all where you would expect. Um, and then the other thing I think that's, uh, one thing I like to ask students periodically is like, what kind of words are in these poem? this poem? Like what kind of words are in this first stanza? And, um, what kind of words are in this poem, Johanna? What kind of words are in this first stanza? <laughs> well, sometimes I say, if you had to say one of these words is not like the other, yeah, identified is not like the other mm. words in the mm-hmm. first stanza. Mm-hmm. Um, identified is the only word that like a kindergartner might not know, mm-hmm. I think here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also like not coincidentally Latinate. Right. Uh, compared to all the other words in this stanza. Right. Um, and I think that's pretty interesting too, that polysyllabic, um, right? Is there, yeah, polysyllabic Latinate root, as opposed to, you know, Germanic Anglo-Saxon root. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's pretty interesting. Oh, I guess it passed also, but even so, like that's basically part of the same moment in the poem that the, that the beginning of this poem says like, this is how things were. And then things changed. Yeah. And that's there in the kinds of words uh, that are being used. But then the rhyme makes it so neat um, and calls back to that second line that it doesn't actually feel as much like a departure as, as I think it might initially promise to be. And what the rhyme is on is it's on the day when everything mm-hmm. changed, mm-hmm. right? And the Till away. Day and the away, right, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and really, if the poem is kind of, um, if the poem is telling a kind of before and after story, the before gets one line or one and a half lines, mm-hmm. if we're being generous, and everything else is after, right? Right, right. But then um, we have the repetition of, and now, and now, and now right. we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe. Yes, and we get this um, first-person plural introduced in the second stanza of the poem. And I think I'm um, remembering the way you read the poem to begin with, and and I think I heard it again just now in the way that you read it, where the the meter, the the iambic kind of rhythm gets pretty regular, and and now we roam in sovereign. I mean, mm-hmm. let me let me accentuate it, right? And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe. But bump, 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 mm-hmm. bump, right? So um, we get the we, and we get that kind of regularity of rhythm. Um, mm-hmm. So if I was asking you, I mean, tell me if tell me what you think of this. If I was asking you earlier about like, well, who is the my life as you know in distinction to the me and who is the owner in relation to either of those things at least grammatically it seems by the second stanza those distinctions don't matter yeah they seem like you've jump-started the car by the second stanza okay like the 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 things that seem like initially like maybe these are problems it's like well we are just continuing Uh uh-huh um 
And what do you make of what the, the, the we who are just continuing are actually doing? Um, Can you extend the allegory into yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, you know? there's, yeah, there's some kind of owner figure. And um, who is allowing the speaker uh, to become powerful uh, through violence. Every time I speak for him. Yeah. That speech is the the gun going off? It seems like the speech is the gun going off. Right now we roam in sovereign woods. Um, I actually think the sovereign thing is really interesting. Mm. I went on a long tangent at one point in class about like, I don't think this is the commons. (laughs) Uh-huh. <laughs> like I think this is like enclosed, like right. enclosure woods. Uh-huh. You know, these are, um, which is only interesting, I guess, because like I think Amherst actually has the commons. You know, so okay. like because um, Massachusetts towns have town commons as right. opposed to like the woods being sovereign. Right. Uh, so like, is this in the new world or is this in some kind of old world mm-hmm. fantasy? Is not clear. Mm-hmm. We know it's after the invention of guns and down pillows, but that's basically it. Um, and now we hunt the doe. Yeah, yeah. So if this is a uh, muse, poems are being written here is, I think, the allegorical reading. If this is a um, lover, like... Fun times mm. are being had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the gun is going off. Uh, uh-huh. As it were. Yeah. Yes, as it were. Um, if this is uh, a hunting dog, they are hunting. <laughs> if there's untapped potential, it's now being actualized. Yes, it's, it's being actualized. Yeah. But it's being actualized through violence. Right. Right. Um, and sometimes that's even read as gendered violence. Hunting yeah. the doe. Yes, not hunt the deer, which it might have been. Right. Right. Um, Which would have been gender neutral. Sorry. Right. But there's so many, there's so many rabbit holes to go down here. Like I've read about like um, that does were actually commonly hunted for venison in the 19th century, whatever. Uh, And also it's being um, described not just as violence, but as sort of speech. Every time I speak for him, the mountains Mm. straight Mm. reply. So like that's the gun firing. And the echo ringing and the echo out. ringing in the mountains. It's so interesting but, that the that the description of echo happens in a place that doesn't rhyme. <laughs> that <yes>. should <laughs> right. It should rhyme. Right. Um, and you know we have the we we and then the I and then the him. So they're yeah. not totally uh, the same thing. They're not you know the life and the owner have not been like fully combined here. Yeah, that's right. But there's a kind of, um, but the but the the speaker is able to speak for the owner. It the the speaking. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of any other. I mean, at least like sort of within the um, the metaphor or within the allegory or whatever. It seems clear that the speaking for him, the owner, if you're the gun, loaded gun, that that must be the gun firing. Um, What's less clear to me is what smiling would be in the third stanza. Oh, I know. I keep. And... I feel like I keep picking on you by asking you all these. <laughs> like, hard, explain this hard bit to me. Yeah. I mean, so like sometimes that's read as 
inspiring again. But what it's really right. about is like it seems to be about like pleasure. There. Yeah. And do I smile? Like, first of all, the smile is not automatic. It's like if if I smile. Right. So one way to read and do I, I smile might be like right if I were to smile or and when I smile. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Such cordial light upon the valley glow. So again, it seems to be like you could read it as like the flash from the gun. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, again, the wheels are coming off. Mm-hmm. The wheels keep coming off this poem's allegories. Mm-hmm. It's uh, like it, it's forgetting that it's a gun or something. You know? <laughs> or or it actually is a gun that thinks, you know, that like, like yeah, that, that's being sort of personified or it's a person that's being objectified. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, of course, like the state of women at this time. It's the state of enslaved people. Yeah, you know, like that. This yeah. poem has been read like that. Um, if it's the it is the way that people talk about for a long time that people have talked about uh, the muse and the poet that you speak yeah. for the muse that that's the poet's job. Right. Um, it's the way that people talk about like prophecy or prayer you know religious experience too um so i don't know this poem in some ways like reminds me a little bit of uh there's a moment in james joyce's ulysses where it's like hamlet and the bible and the odyssey like they're all Mm -hmm. the same story (laughs) about the the lost son Mm -hmm. looking for the father and the father looking for the Mm -hmm. son and um and it sort of feels like i'm like this is like so many things that could be the same story, mm. but it can't quite maintain them all. It can't quite uh, keep them all um, in the air at the same time. So then they're all just sort of there in different lines, one after the other. Huh. And any reading of this poem that tries to sort of be like, here is a unified reading of this poem can't take in all of it. Yeah. F- fair enough and maybe that's part of what's irritating yeah and also what i like yeah yeah right <laughs> um so um can can we talk about the vesuvian face because yes. that seems like another um another kind of violence that is yeah maybe but so, but yeah so, so, so to remind people who don't know what vesuvius even is and, yeah, yeah so vesuvius is a volcano um near Naples, uh, that exploded and buried Pompeii. So like, I think Pompeii mm-hmm. is like the reference point, right. uh, in you know the Roman world, uh, but was, is also like constantly erupting and was erupting during Dickinson's writing of this poem somewhere. I wrote down the years it was erupting, but it was like erupting through the 1850s into the 1860s. Um, so it would have like presumably been in the news, uh, and throughout her poetry, she writes about Vesuvius, um, oh. as an image of, destruction and also like pleasure and release. Yeah. So, uh, and in yeah. fact, Adrian Rich's like very celebrated, oh, I think 1976 essay about Dickinson that mm. um, reframed Dickinson for second wave feminists is called Vesuvius at Home, mm. which is one of the lines of Dickens from a Dickinson poem. So like a Vesuvian face is like a volcano felt, like a, if a volcano had a face, yeah. then when it erupts, that face would feel would 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 relate its pleasure. Yeah. So it's so interesting. Because, but like, yeah, go on. But like a gun, I mean, this image makes sense to us as being like a loaded gun. Right. A uh, uh, 
um, something that contains this potential energy. Yeah, that's sort of blocked up. Right. And then is released and Mm. is destructive. And of course, what we want to do as like people writing in the wake of like Freud and so on is to think of, you know, repression um, and then a kind of breakthrough moment. or, or, you know, anyway, a kind of a, an eruption of the unconscious. Um, so, sorry, w- one thing that just occurred to me, too, was, you know, there's that famous Dickinson line in the letter about, like, how she knows if it's poetry, if I feel as though the top of my head were taken off. Yes. It just struck me that that's an image of a volcano, too. Yes. <laughs> right? Right. Yes. That there's like a mountain of, with its head taken off. Right. right. That there's an image of sort of um, uh, explosion. Um upwards or right. outwards or something like that right. uh and it's pleasurable and that's pleasurable which is i think part of why i'm like it's okay that like i don't love this poem the way that i love other poems because i don't actually think this poem is interested in that um kind of love i think this poem is sort of interested in like pleasure and fear which is like what i feel relative to it oh What's the kind of love you like? Dis- distinguish that from the kind of love you have elsewhere oh. for like I I don't know what were the other poems? Um, tell all the truth but tell it slant. Or yeah. I started early, took my dog. Uh, tell all the truth but tell it slant. Um, I mean, not the. I just I just mean in general. Yeah. Like you say, yeah, it's not interested in that kind of love. I want you to okay, say more. Okay, tell about all the that. truth and tell it slant. The second stanza of tell all the truth is but tell it slant is um, uh. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. And I remember being a graduate student, actually. I don't know if Oren remembers this. I remember having an argument with Oren about that stanza, and he was totally right in retrospect. But I thought explanation kind was an explanation of lightning that, like, explained to children not to be afraid of lightning because, like, here's the scientific process behind it. It's static electricity, whatever. And Orner was like, no, when you have children, you don't tell them the truth about everything. You tell mm. them the thing that like makes them feel comfortable in the world. Mm. Yeah. Like that's yeah. what, ex- like the kind, the explanation kind there mm. is about like the kindness of an explanation that like lets you feel safe in the world. Mm. Not like the science. Yeah. I didn't have children yet then. If yeah. You did. Right. Um, but I think that's a poem that's interested in a kind, in a kind of kindness. Uh-huh. Like, what is it that okay. you need in order to like feel at home in the world? And, and this this poem <clears throat> has kindness, or what might seem internally like kindness represented within it, but it's not rep- represent. It's not um, relating kindly to you is yeah. that what you're saying i, I mean think i'm thinking right. about the fourth think stanza for instance right um yes and and when at night our good day done i guard my master's head tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared i mean that's that if you if i don't know that seems like care or something I don't know. well it's care but it's not intimacy i see for one right yeah. i mean the gun is not sharing the gun quote unquote is not sharing the pillow with the master and again we don't like the master and owner like we think those are the same yeah um right what makes a good day is protecting like what what ends the good day is the protection um presumably against us for example Ah. coming into this scene right like we are there's a sort of guarding against 
of external forces guarding my master's head. And then also there's not, there's trust, I think, but not, um, but not intimacy. There's a sort of like, Mm. yeah. There's not, there's not like mutuality. No. Um, there's also, I think I can mention here that Dickinson wrote three letters that we don't know if she ever sent to someone she addresses Mm. as master. Right. The master letters, the master letters. Right. Before probably before this poem, um, there's a lot of speculation about these. Uh, there's some shared language with this poem, mm-hmm. very vaguely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not exactly that they're kinky, <laughs> but it's, it's uh, not that they're not. <laughs> but it's not that they're not. <laughs> right. yeah. um, so you know, listeners can go look those up. Yeah. Uh, but right. Um, right. you know, here too there is a sense of like a near miss with the erotic or something on the edge of the erotic. It also strikes me that the, um, the eider ducks deep pillow. I mean, that's, that's a fine way to describe a nice soft pillow that mm-hmm. a person could lay their head on, but it also, um, um, lays bare the violence that produced that soft yes. pillow, right? Pre- yes. Like they, some they, gun they shot, shot that duck. They, <laughs> right. they shot a duck. At right. least. Well, I, I don't know how many ducks you need for a pillow. <laughs> I don't either. It's a deep pillow. Yeah. More than one, I'm guessing. Um, although once it was a low pillow in, a, in the variant reading, you know, like right. the other reading is a low pillow as right. opposed to a deep pillow. So maybe the number of ducks depends on that. But yes, it's uh, better. So I, one of the things I... Th- think is interesting in this stanza is that we have evaluation like we have good right. our good day done yeah i guard my master's head tis better than the eider ducks mm. deep pillow to have shared mm-hmm. like there are things that are less good and things that are better right um here and so there's a lot of those comparisons being made um, mm-hmm. at, but we don't know we don't know what the ruler is mm. By which by which these comparisons are being made. Well, I think in the in the last case, isn't the, the the claim is that like the the relationship wherein the gun guards the master's head is is a better kind of uh, relation, or is 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 better is a better kind of relation to have than to share a pillow with a lover or something like that. Yes. Right. Okay. Or even the master's pillow. Mm-hmm. That guarding the master is better than sharing the pillow with the master. Right. Okay. That does sound like I hear the dog now. That's right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, to foe of his, I'm deadly foe. None stir the second time. On whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. There's a slant rhyme for us. Time yep. and thumb. Say, say something about that stanza johanna now i'm just pointing at stanzas and and saying (laughs) yeah (laughs) tell us something it's i don't like know what to say about it in a way because it's uh like again as with so many things this poem it's on one hand extremely straightforward like Mm -hmm. the gun is gonna protect the master the with, with deadly violence yeah um, the gun is has this kind of like absolute loyalty to the master, to foe of his. I'm yeah. deadly foe. Yeah. Um, 
none stir the second time, like the gun does not miss. Right. On whom I lay a yellow eye. Yeah. Or an emphatic thumb. And so then we're like back in the realm of the human here. And this is like where that Right. Like, it's like it's like only humans, I think, have thumbs. <laughs> yeah, there might be some other primates that but do. Humans sure. don't have yeah. yellow eyes. Unless they're um, Frankenstein's monster or something. Right. I was thinking about very that. Very bad case yeah. of jaundice. Yeah. But, um... Yeah. So, but sorry, uh, you know, in a way it's, it's funny because like the, the allegorical reading we were offering at the beginning was, okay, so let's, let's take the feminist one, right? There's the, my life refers to a woman's, you know, a particular woman's life, which is like a loaded gun in the sense that all, all of the ways that we've described it, it has this kind of unrealized potentiality in it. And then it, and then it gets to fire, you know, because Mm -hmm. maybe this woman gets to write her poems or what have you. Um, But then it's like within the allegory, the gun suddenly starts to become human, right? It it sort of flips back again, right? It's like the gun is being, the gun which had objectified the human is now being personified. Like one of the things that's so interesting to me is not just that, um, We've had so many interpretations of this poem, but we don't agree. I mean, okay. I think that's interesting. Uh-huh. Um, but that also interpreting this poem is simultaneously so easy and so hard. Mm-hmm. Like it just really invites a kind of um, s- solving of it. Uh-huh. Like it really invites people to be like, oh, like if I put this piece in, if I say it's the muse or it's God or it's um, sex or something, then like, then I can make sense of it as if it's like a crossword, but it won't let you do that. Actually. It keeps, it keeps. So it's easy because it invites that, but hard because it then resists it. Yeah. I think so. A poem that was easy, easy would invite it and reward it. It would be a riddle or something. Yeah. And a poem that was hard, hard wouldn't invite it to begin with. (laughs) Yeah. So I think like, and I don't want to um, attach too much like value to like poems that are easier in this way or poems. I don't think it's what, I don't think it's better to be one way or the other. Okay. So like, even I think um, like a poem like The Red Wheelbarrow by William Carlos Williams Mm -hmm. It's not like easy to interpret. You can take, you know, an hour and a half with a class and mm-hmm. get pretty far, but not feel like you're done. And it's so short, but it um, it rewards interpretation. And this poem, I think, uh, is incredibly coy with interpretation. I see. In that it invites it and then doesn't reward it. Mm-hmm. Um. It's uh, it's not easy to understand this poem, but it's really easy to make arguments about it, <laughs> Good. Good. which like I think is really interesting. Maybe nowhere more than in its final stanza. Um, yeah. So I'm like, this is part of, I think, my hesitancy in terms of offering like a reading of this poem yeah. is because um, I'm really interested in the fact that uh, it has had so many readings and yeah. um, there is not one reading to rule them all. That, you know, yeah. that like that, um, that the best Dickinson scholars read this poem and read it really differently, which is like 
super cool. Right. But uh, but I don't I don't feel like I have a key for it either. I sort of. Um, Is there something you can say about how that? situation that you've just described and have just described as so in you know sort of exciting to you the best consent you know i'm paraphrasing now the best dickinson scholars read this poem and they don't agree about it i mean how is that like and unlike you know what the best fill in the blank scholars would say about some other poem i mean i feel as i because i think you're you're getting at something that's different from simply saying, oh, a poem is kind of inexhaustible or there isn't a reading that once and for all settles a poem. You're, do you understand? The, I'm not even sure I'm asking yeah. the question clearly right now, but maybe you, maybe I'm giving you something that you can work with. Yeah, so I do think that... Sometimes there are just like readings of poems that are so good that no one else tries. <laughs> uh-huh. Or if they try, they build on a reading. Uh-huh. Um and like maybe there's some like So they might accept the reading. Yeah. But then say, and here's what we can do beyond that, in the way that like Galileo's theories build on Newton's, but don't dispense right. with them, right? Um, and that can still be a counter argument. Like, yes, and can still be like a response to a counter argument, you know? So it's not that everyone is like always in harmony. Um, but people feel really strongly about this poem mm-hmm. and have very different accounts of it. Mm-hmm. Like, Sharon Cameron's account of this poem as like about how identity means death mm-hmm. uh, is really different than um, Virginia Jackson's and is really different than Susan Howe's who like reads this poem relative to child Roland and mm-hmm. like is really mm-hmm. different, you know, than uh, Susan Stewart's and, mm-hmm. um, and that's, I think really uh, it tells us something both about the kind of thing we're doing when we read poems. Um, yeah. How much and it is also the... te- tells us about this poem in particular as, mm. um, as clarifying that activity for us. I guess what I'm wanting to ask you is how much in your view of what we do when we read poems is like mastery or, you know. Yeah. Well, and this poem is all about mastery. That's right? why I, I mean, ask, like the master, yeah. the past identified and carried me away. Like, is that what I'm doing when I read a poem? Do I identify something and then carry it away with me and make it speak right. for me? Right. Um, and make, and the mountains will answer to the, and thing the mountains made will it answer do. because yeah. it's the only voice around actually. Mm-hmm. Um, in my chapter on Dickinson in my book, I write about uh, her analogies, her use of analogies as a form of logical reasoning, mm-hmm. and that this poem is an incomplete analogy. Mm. Um, and so it has like this missing term, like a Mad Lib, mm-hmm. and people can plug in all kinds of different things there, and it works, mm-hmm. which is to say, I mean, like, in this is what I say there is like, this poem is a loaded gun. Mm-hmm. Like, this poem comes, like, you come to this poem, and... It goes off. Mm-hmm. You plug in what you what you're interested in and what you're thinking about and what you see, and it and it roars to life like it goes. 
the loaded gun analogy would suggest that that you don't quite maybe that you don't quite um plug in what you want to plug in because it's already got the it's bullets but you mm-hmm. you pointed at what you pointed at you know or yeah. something yeah right um we, we've got to talk about the final stanza yes um though i than he may longer live so this one is um framed like a riddle and dickinson's poems are sometimes compared to riddles right but they're also sometimes compared to dictionary entries <laughs> which is interesting because that's actually the inverse right like Start, a riddle yeah. a riddle describes something and says like what am i right. right like that's how the exeter book of riddles works right and a dictionary entry uh, starts, here's the thing, here's what it is. Right. Um, and the only r- r- rules really are like the words can include the word. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, um, yeah. And people have written about how like um, Noah Webster, Webster's dictionary was in, uh, was also an Amherst, right. Massachusetts guy. Um, so here it's, you know, well, how can I make sense of the of this, what seems like a paradox? Read the stanza. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I. For I have but the power to kill without the power to die. <laughs> I mean, Carmen, I don't have answers for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's a, it's it's in the in the in a very deep sense of the word, it's it's got wit, right? It's it's yeah. clever. Yeah, and um, I think it, I think it's a poem that actually does keep outwitting its readers, which right. is I think part of part of its difficulty is that it it sort of beckons it, you along and then turns. But if we just tried, I'm going to try, and you interrupt me. That yeah, th- though I than he may longer live. Okay, if if we're in the allegory and the I designates a gun and the he designates a human who's carried that gun away who is the owner of the gun, then it it makes perfect sense in a way to say, I will I may live longer than he does because mm-hmm. he's mortal and and I'm metal and whatever. And and so I mean the 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 thing that doesn't make sense about it is to say that that I is living in the first place, but set that aside. Sure. He longer must than I so that doesn't quite make sense, but then it seems as though the third and fourth lines are going to explain why that conclusion has well, been reached. But may and must are again not the same thing. Huh. So, so like, I may longer live. Right. Yeah. And may and can may mean more than one thing. May can on mean more time. than one thing right. too. Yeah. But must could be just the force of feeling. He must. He must outlive me right. because I could not bear it if he were to not. Right. He lo- right. Or it could be. It's like a wish. Right. Right. Yeah. Or it could be that that's a determined fact or right. uh, some kind of necessary condition or something like that. So it's not clear. It's not clear what that, what that is there. He longer must, must than, than I. I. And if the, but the reasoning is for I have but the power to kill without the power to die. So as I try to sort of like retrofit that explanation into the thing that it must be explaining as it were, Mm -hmm. and I realize I'm on, I'm on your turf here, talking about explanation. um, It seems as though 
it's it's because the gun can't die. It sounds paradoxical that he must outlive me. Yes. Because I won't, is it because, is it something, could it be something like, because I, the gun, won't die a natural death? If I'm all alone, I won't die. But maybe he can end my life first, and then he gets to die. Right, but is it like, are we talking about like a John Donne poem here, you know, know. with like people (laughs) buried together? You're like, what are we talking about? Like, I don't know. So it's even, I think there's a way that you could read it as like a gun. Yeah, I think there's a way that you know, and this is a Susan Stewart reading. You could read it as a hunting dog or something, right. and about like oh, relative God. lifespans. Now I'm thinking of. Sorry, now you're yeah. gonna make me cry. All right, go I on. know. Yeah, I think you can um, read it as like a sort of like account of like what life really is. Like, is are you really alive if the enabling force of your life is not there anymore? You know, like. What is like you can sort of go to the abstraction so quickly in this poem. It's mm-hmm. just like an elevator to abstraction. Like you're just mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also don't really know. I mean, I think it, you end up sort of being like, well, what does it really mean to have the power to die? And there's a kind of mm-hmm. reading of that that's like, well, okay, like a gun doesn't have the power to die because it's like metal and wood or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not alive in the first place. But if it's not alive in the first place, can it die right. <laughs> even? Or like, do we only talk about things dying that in fact have lived? Right. Okay, so they're like, what does it mean to really live? Like if you're, we talk about that uh, sort of in a maybe literal way of drawing breath and right. being an organism and so on. Right. But like we also talk about, um well like really living yeah i guess different yeah i i I, i'm kind of toying with a distinction here now to go all the way back to the first two words of the poem my life and maybe if we could sorry so the distinction would be let's be careful about it my life isn't exactly the same as um i Mm -hmm. my life is you know I, whatever I am, I exist, but my life is like, is, is the shape of that existence over time is the, it's, it's full duration. And would it make a kind of sense or could it maybe, I think maybe it could, this is what I say I'm toying with that like, I can die. In fact, I will, but my life can't die. Like Insofar as my life is a thing, it doesn't have the power to die. Like it, if it does, because if it does, I don't know, like definitionally to go back to what you were saying, what it is, is like a living thing. Yeah. You know, whereas I'm a thing that's alive, which might become a thing that's dead, will become a thing that's dead. I think you're making the mountain straight reply. (laughs) How so? You know, like, I mean, I think you're sort of doing this thing that the poem, um, asks you to do which is to like solve its problems yeah (laughs) and then it'll like be really loud when it does because like that's a very powerful account of how we should understand a life Uh um and it's not one that i would have come up with which is Mm -hmm. like cool and like why i like teaching yeah in general and talking to people and like why this is so fun yeah um but yeah i mean i do think this poem is uh 
like asks you to do that kind of work. Yeah. And then it's really, you know, Vesuvian. Yeah. It's fun. And it's also lifts the top of your head off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, and lets its pleasure through. <laughs> lets its pleasure through. Uh, but it also feels potentially destructive or yeah. like harm is one of the variant words. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, that was the variant word that I said I'd want to talk about, but that we didn't. So it, it might be and art. Yeah, yeah, it might be for I have but the power to kill without the power to die, or it might be for I have but the art to kill without the power to die. As the, I mean, art and power seem <laughs> synonymous enough. Maybe they're like those near synonyms that you were describing earlier. Mm-hmm. But if the if it were art and not power, then it would seem to be pointing at whatever distinguishes the one from the other. Yeah. yeah. Um, the art to kill. Well, and it, like you know, like you see Sylvia Plath here mm-hmm. too. I've right? been thinking of her throughout this conversation. Actually, yeah, this reads I, like a Plath poem. Mm-hmm. It reads like a Plath poem. Um, like you see what you learned from Dickinson here. Yeah. Um, Johanna, we, we you know obviously this is one of those cases. I'll, I mean, you know, I think I'll, every one of these conversations I have is is where we could just um, keep on going. <laughs> We were going to try to stick to an hour too. Yeah, we, we were going to try to stick to an hour. We didn't, and I think we both have um, our children to get from school or whatever. So um, we're going to have to cut it short. Um, but maybe before we go, I can ask you to read the poem for us one more time. Yeah. My life had stood a loaded gun in corners till a day the owner passed, identified, and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hug the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. And do I smile such cordial light upon the valley glow? It is as a Vesuvian face had let its pleasure through. And when at night, our good day done, I guard my master's head. Tis better than the eider duck's deep pillow to have shared. To foe of his, I'm deadly foe, none stir the second time, on whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I, for I have but the power to kill without the power to die. Uh, Johanna Winant, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure to talk with you and to talk about this poem. And thank you listeners for making it with us. Um, Please um, stay uh, or subscribe to the podcast if you, if you haven't already and, um, and leave a rating review, share an episode with a friend. I, I love the community we formed and I hope to let it keep growing. We'll have more episodes for you soon. And in the meantime, be well, everyone.